Hi everyone, this is The 20s Project with Sebastian and Jay. Today's interview is with Brooke Davis. Brooke graduated from Harvard Law School, where she was awarded the Andrew L. Kaufman Pro Bono Service Award for her publication, Power, Protest, and Political Change. Currently, Brooke is a legal advisor in Constitution Building at the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. In this discussion, Brooke shares her unexpected path into international relations, her personal experience holding controversial viewpoints, and tips and tricks she's learned about negotiation. Sebastian and I learned a ton from our chat with Brooke, and we think you will too. Hi, Brooke. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Sebastian and Jay with The 20s Project. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Hello, both of you, and I'm so honored to be asked. Awesome. Well, let's dive right in. I know that you were initially interested in applying to art school in your undergrad. Fast forward to today, you've recently graduated from Harvard Law School, currently live in Geneva, working in international relations. We want to use the time today to hear your journey and what you've learned. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your upbringing, what young Brooke was like, and what her worldview was. Oh, gosh. Youngbrook's worldview, I think, was so limited. <laughs> it was so small, which is why maybe I found international work so interesting, I guess. I like I always try to think back on why I ended up where I am now, and I don't have a good answer for it. I, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a great beautiful town in North Carolina, but it is a bit of a cultural desert. <laughs> there are like no theater, no big museums, except for the NASCAR museum, which I don't think really counts. And I think I just had this really limited, like normal American public school education, which like is more about getting you to the next standardized test than like actually instilling in you any like critical thinking skills or like intellectual ability. And yeah, I think, I think I have no idea. Maybe that's just part of it, but I think just my whole life, I just wanted to get out of Charlotte. Maybe it was just some sort of like teenage angst and like every 16 year old feels this way. But to me, like art became just this great escape that I got to get into and use my brain and to go other places and to imagine other worlds. And yeah, while I was still growing up in Charlotte <laughs> and desperately wishing that I was somewhere else. And also I liked it and there's something I was good at. And I was just very stubborn as a kid. And so I think once that I found art and I found that I liked it, it was like, okay, like, this is it. This is the thing that I will be doing for the rest of my life. And I don't care about anything else, like including my grades, which really were very poor. And <laughs> I remember how I got to UNC from wanting to go to art school was I applied to only art schools for college and in like straight up art schools, not like a great school with an art program. The art school where my math abilities <laughs> like, would not proceed beyond AP and stat and that would be it like for my entire life. And I remember my mom saying to me, I will support you going to art school and paying an enormous amount of money for what I think is a worthless degree <laughs> if you apply to one non-art school. And I said, fine, great deal. And I chose UNC Chapel Hill. And I remember they waitlisted me and then they deferred me. So I was like, first, <laughs> no, wait, the other way around. I was first deferred and then they waitlisted me. And I only got in 
on May 9th, I remember, because it was my mother's birthday. And it was a week after like the national deadline for declaring that you were going to college. So I was really bottom of the barrel for them letting anyone in. And I think honestly, the reason why I went was because when they waitlisted me, I was like, how dare you <laughs> do that? And it was so traumatizing and like facing the prospect of not getting into a school that I thought I could get into for a stupid reason, like not trying hard enough in high school was like enough for me to be like, I'm going to throw this whole art idea away <laughs> hmm. and completely change my life plan. So yeah, it basically my whole life. I'm not an artist because I spitefully wanted to prove the UNC admissions office wrong. <laughs> but but you would do art. I remember when you were at UNC. Is that something that you continue to pursue today or it's totally buried? Yeah. Oh, no, I love it. And I, I think honestly, like, I would love to retire early and go back to art full time. Like, I, I think it's a hobby that I've kept up. It's something that's never left me. And I've been able to have periods of my life where I was able to devote all my time to it full time. Like in like those liminal spaces between grad school summers before internships started and stuff like that, I found a way to squeeze it into my life. And oh yeah, it's a huge part of me. Yeah, it reminds me of a quote that I love that says in order to become the person you need to be you have to sacrifice the people that you could have been and so I, I don't know if that's how you yeah. feel about where you're heading and, and having this art passion inside of you I think so I think I wouldn't call it sacrifice because I don't think I've totally let it go I remember there's one quote that I heard I don't know if it was from Melinda Gates or from someone else and it, it went something like you can have it all but just not at the same time Like you can have, I can have a law career and I can have an art career and I can have a family and I can have all of these things, but maybe not at the same time. And I think that's how I see my art where I'm happy to put it on the back burner to build this career that I really want. And then also wait until it's done for a second career to, to go back to art full time. Do you ever feel like getting deferred or getting waitlisted at UNC put this like chip on your shoulder where you were, hey, I need to push myself. And to this day, maybe it was a blessing because you continue to just push and grind because maybe at the beginning they were like, okay, why, what are they not seeing in me that I see myself? Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely I would call it a blessing. Absolutely. I would not call it a chip on my shoulder, but more like a fire under my ass. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I remember just thinking, I absolutely, it's not something that I thought that I didn't deserve. I absolutely deserved not to get into UNC. Like I did not have the grades. I like didn't have the SAT score for it. Like I just, I could not have cared less about that stuff in high school. And so I consider it like a fluke of the universe that UNC happened to let me in because in no way was I near the GPA requirement. And I think what it did though, was make me realize that it was totally my own fault <laughs> that I had gotten myself into this predicament, that I could have worked harder in school. I could have done all these things. I could have studied. It was fully within my potential to have done the things that would have prevented this outcome and yet I didn't do them. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, I am never going to put myself in a position where I, for a stupid reason, if it's stubbornness or laziness or procrastination or whatever, like I will never put myself in that position again for such a bad reason. Absolutely. 
it was a blessing because I learned that lesson really early on. And it's something that I stuck to. That's so interesting because I think looking at your career today and tracing it back, it would have seemed like this was always part of the plan. You studied international relations and Middle Eastern studies in school. So at what point did that focus shift from art to international relations and what you do today? Yeah, it was another total fluke. As part of orientation at UNC, they lined us all up to declare, to like have like a 30 second career counseling or like academic advising session where you inputted like a preliminary major and then that was it. There was nothing more to it. And I remember it was at orientation freshman year and I was in this long line where we were just filing through one academic advisor after another was just taking us. I was standing in line with this girl who I still know. And it was so funny because she was a Moorhead and it was this huge scholarship at UNC is really prestigious. I was feeling very insecure because she seemed like this beautiful, cultured, intellectual person. And here I was this like derpy 18 year old who barely got into UNC. I remember we got to chatting and this was in 2013. And I turned to her and I said, what are you going to tell these people in academic advising that year that you want to study because I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. And she turned to me and she said, anyone who's interested in anything about the world has to be fascinated by the Arab Spring. It's the news topic of the day. How could you not be? And I had no idea what that was at the time. And I, I said, of course, how could you not be so captivated by this Arab Spring? <laughs> and she's like, yes, of course, like exactly. And then I, I went, cause I had no idea. I was like, as a result, you are majoring in. And then she said, peace, war and defense. How could you not because of the Arab Spring? And I said, oh, me too, peace, war, and defense. I mean, all the way. <laughs> and I got to the academic advisor and the academic advisor looked me in the eye and he said, what do you wanna do? What are you interested in? And I was like, how could you not be interested in the Arab Spring? I have to be a peace, war, and defense major. And then he stamped my like hand, okay, great. Go, you're in peace, war, and defense. And That's then I amazing. loved it. It was just totally random. I thank that girl for my whole career because I do not know if I would have found it without her. But yeah, I ended up taking <laughs> Peace War and Defense classes and loved it. And there you go. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. That Isn't is awesome. that bad? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story to choose your I major. Love that. So Brooke, you barely got into UNC. How did you become a Robertson scholar? <laughs> We're all very surprised about that. No, I'm not surprised by that. And, and maybe before we like get into how it happened, maybe you could also take a couple sentences and explain what that program is. Yeah. Yeah, so the Robertson Scholars Leadership Program is this really phenomenal program between Duke and UNC. On its face, at the most basic level, it's just a, it's a full tuition scholarship between the two schools that also provides summer funding and career mentorship and an alumni network and an incredible cohort of students from both schools who get to go through their college experience together. But really at the core of it, I think it just was this great community of people who are doing such interesting and awesome things. And yeah, I, how I got from being the last person led into UNC to applying for the Robertson scholarship. It was the same, it was that same exact 
fire that I talked about before. Like, I just remember going into UNC and thinking, I am going to kill it. Like, whatever this peace, war, and defense thing is, I'm going to be really good at it. <laughs> I don't know about the Arab Spring, the Arab Summer, exactly. the Arab Fall. <laughs> All of the seasons. <laughs> I will know them like the back of my hand. Exactly. And now I worked really hard. I got good grades my first semester and applied for the Robertson. And, um, by that time, I knew a little bit of what I was talking about and had joined J Street U, which is this great student movement that's anti-occupation, pro-two-state solution movement around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and was getting really passionate about that movement. And then I applied to the Robertson, got it for who knows what reason. And then there you go. I definitely think that it changed my life. I, I don't know about you, fashion, but I think that it just provided not only like the opportunities to become a good candidate for everything that came next, but also really just helped me see a future where I could actually do something and do something that was interesting and what I was passionate about. Jay, as, as you can probably tell, Brooke is very humble. <laughs> uh, Brooke, w one question I had, and you've described this scholarship as a safety net to explore and take risks. Now, how does that change for someone who might not have the safety net? And I know you didn't have it at all times, but having that safety net definitely allowed you to maybe run faster and explore new things. So does it change if you don't have it? Oh, 100%. I, and, and you said that I didn't have that at all times. Of course I did. I didn't grow up having to support a family. I didn't deal with family tragedy growing up. Like I had every sort of structural advantage that you could have as like a white kid growing up in America in like a normal, like middle income household. And I think what that allowed me to do was it lowered the stakes. Like me failing meant that maybe I would have to rely on my parents for some support. It didn't mean not being able to provide for a family member in need who was in ill health. It didn't mean losing a job that I needed. Um, I, I, I think it, it changed everything. I think it lowers the stakes definitely for me. And I, I just hope that there are people who get to be on this podcast who did have to face those tough choices in those really difficult states because I didn't. And unfortunately, I feel like I don't have great advice for people who are in that situation. So yeah, it changes everything. And it's something that is systemic that keeps people in poverty and disproportionately people of color from taking those risks. And I think what happens when you're not able to take those risks and what happened for me when I did take those risks was that it be it allowed me to become a better candidate for the stepping stones that came after. It allowed me each time to reach a little bit farther and reach a little bit farther and reach a little bit farther. And if you're not allowed to reach and to stretch out your hand, then you're not allowed to go farther. So yeah, absolutely. It changes everything. It really does. I think that's such an important point because I think there's cliche advice out there that oh you've got to take risks earlier in your career but let's be honest like I, I think it helps a lot to have institutions or stamps on your resume that allow you to do that whether it's going to college or being part of a scholarship program or something like that it just allows you to take those risks later in your career yeah 100 percent. I think that when I call the Robertson a safety net it goes back to that whole thing of if you fail I, I would not have fallen 
as far as I would have if I didn't have the Robertson or if I didn't have the support from my parents. But what you said, Jay, I think is interesting. I think that I feel like young people are given this twin advice that is collectively unhelpful because it's incompatible with one another. Like on the one hand, I feel like young people are told to take risks early on in your career, go do the big thing. But then what we're also told is around this buzzword of optionality, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, your twenties are about like building your options so that like you can do anything. And that means like going to a great like master's program or like doing going to an institution with a very prestigious name so that you get those stamps, which I'm not minimizing in saying are not important. The name of my law school is very important for better or for worse. And so I, but I think we, we were like stuck between these two pieces of advice that we're told constantly, which are like, I think completely read together are like incomprehensible. What does it mean to take risks in which you are reaching forward and risking failure? And yet at the same time, keeping all of your options open. Yeah. I think that advice, at least in my point of view, is, is always given in the context of to the audience that has already accrued some of those stamps and they just keep stamp collecting essentially yeah and then never take yeah. risks with the stamps i think read together they can make sense but it's i think it's for a very specific audience um, totally a hundred percent and i saw that so much just in the past three years in law school i i feel like i got to go to this place and was so lucky to have this opportunity and for my entire cohort to have this life-changing opportunity where finally you were at a place where you could take a risk it felt like finally we had enough stamps where you could do the thing that was risky because at the end of the day if you fail you're still a lawyer like you still went to this prestigious law school you can only fall so far if you fail and yet the risk aversion that was in my cohort was just so high. I went to this law school with so many people who had such big ideas about how they wanted to make change. And they're all working at corporate law firms now. And not to say that's, you know, not a bad thing. We need corporate lawyers. <laughs> and also a lot of people are facing a lot of debt that makes a really prestigious, high paying job, very attractive. I know that just as much as anyone i have two hundred thousand dollars in debt plus interest from my law degree but yeah i think if you get in the mindset of like perpetual stamp collecting you're never going to get where you want to go with all those stamps because you're always going to take the safest option we spoke a little bit about this in one of our earlier uh, conversations with rohan where he described the difference between an achievement and an award an award being maybe graduating from a famous law school or being recognized in a famous list and an achievement being what you actually want to achieve with whatever organization you're a part of or the type of impact that you want to have in other people and his view being you want to collect achievements as early as you can because they will or sorry you you want to achieve you want, to collect, you want to collect as many you want to collect as many awards as early as you can so that those can push you to really achieve what you want and really the mission should be the achievement impacting other people's lives and it shouldn't be the award but it happens to be there's a little bit of a circle where sometimes receiving an award will continue to push your mission forward but yeah totally agree with, with what you say brooke of collecting stamps forever it probably doesn't work and i think the tricky bit is when is enough enough and I think that's 
ultimately a personal decision, but it's a scary one because it's nice to feel like you're always cultivating your potential and to take the next step and to try to use that potential is something that is terrifying to me. I am still absolutely working through that. I have no idea how to do it. I feel like recently post law school, I just took that big first step. But my next step after that, the next step after the one I'm at right now, I have no idea. And it's scary. It's really scary. Join the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I know, finally, I'm back in the working world. It's terrifying. Being a student was so great. <laughs> so, Brooke, I actually think this is a perfect segue in a topic we want to talk about with you. One reason that people, I think, accrue stamps is because they're just waiting to figure out what their purpose is and, and they want optionality until they can actually find, okay, what am I passionate about and what can I do with my skills? And so I think for you, if, if I'm reading your, about your background and going back to your involvement in J Street in college, I feel like you found uh, a purpose relatively early in your life. So can you talk about your involvement in J Street, but also how Judaism has been uh, a key pillar for you throughout your life and, and career? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, oh gosh, such a big question. I would say less about me finding purpose and more like kind of purpose finding me, if that makes more sense. I don't think it's anything I particularly did. So I, just as a bit about my own religious background, so I grew up Jewish. I am still Jewish. I don't know how many weeks of not going to temple <laughs> may qualify you for finally not being Jewish, but I don't think that's the way it works. But anyway, yeah. And it's a weird thing and quirk of the Jewish community in America that we have tied unqualified support to Israel, no matter the policy or decision of its government to our definition of being Jewish. If you are a good Jew, that means that you give your money and your time and your support and your political votes to the cause of growing and supporting Israel. And that's what I grew up believing. I went to day schools and preschools and summer camps and Hebrew schools and bat mitzvah schools that told me over and over again that it is your job to defend Israel no matter what. And as part of that training there in America is a deliberate decision among many, not all, but many of the sects of the religion to not talk about the occupation um, and to not mm. talk about settlements because that is complicated <laughs> to the narrative of unqualified support to Israel. And to the larger idea that being Jewish and Judaism is about justice. I think that's one thing that I love about my religion is that a core principle of it is that it is our job to strive for a more just world and for justice. And I, I got to college like every other American Jew in the country and learned about the occupation and was extremely upset that one, this was happening in a place that I knew that there is a military occupation over millions of people and a history of intentional displacement and depression. And two, that my community, which taught me these values, did not teach me about this and did not trust me to be able to hold the complexity of being Jewish and having the Jewish state also being a military occupier over the Palestinian territories of Gaza and the West Bank. And so I was extremely upset 
as is, have been so many other young people and decided that I felt a responsibility to do something about it. And I was very fortunate that UNC had a branch of the student movement called J Street U. And J Street U was founded to organize the American Jewish community towards a new type of politics that supported the existence of Israel, but did not support the occupation and essentially separated support for Israel from support for government policies of oppression and occupation. And basically was trying to organize for a two-state solution. It was something that I was in for four years, but yeah, it was like a seminal experience in my life. I, I think it's J Street is the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Your involvement in J Street has at times introduced a bit of tension within your relationships, within the Jewish community, or maybe even including your own family. Maybe you can tell us generally how this personal challenge of taking a stance on a controversial topic, you know, what that has meant to you and, and what you've learned uh, from doing so. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's something that I have evolved around in my views for so long. Because when I first joined Jishriyu, my family was like outraged. It was like, dear God, like how did this lamb in the flock go so astray? Like we paid so much for you to go to all these Jewish summer camps. And like, now you've decided to hate Israel and all this stuff. And yeah, it was terrible. It didn't feel nice to go to a bat mitzvah for my cousin and then get accosted by eight people like asking about this Facebook post that I posted about like the Gaza war in 2014 and how disappointed they were in me. Um, and I think it made it, I, I think it made me even angrier feeling like I was acting on the values that this community had given me, that I was asking in, for a politics that was more just. And, and then I think also as I got more involved in the movement and in my senior year of college i was president of the movement but it became and, and that also happened to be the year that trump was elected it became the criticism became intense in a way that was not nice anymore and i had a smaller but visible platform and that brought with it threats on twitter people putting swastikas into my mailbox death threats being mailed to our headquarters, threats against my body. So that that was really shocking as a 20-year-old. That was something that I didn't know how really to deal with. And now as a 26-year-old, it's just something that I've made peace with. It's the cost of doing business, right? If you want to change something, if you want to change a politics, if you want to change a dynamic, if you want to shift a paradigm, yeah, people aren't going to be happy about it. No, <laughs> not everyone is going to be your friend. And of course, it's not okay to threaten people, to put swastikas in their mailbox. But to me now, I think I've come to the realization that if I want to do something that makes change and that has impact, yeah, I better be ready to face criticism and to face pushback and to be okay with that and to welcome it actually, because then that means that it's working. <laughs> because if no one is pissed off at you, it doesn't mean that you're getting your message out. So yeah, wow. now to me, cost of doing business. If no one is pissed at you, 
that means you're not getting your message out. Jay, we need to save that quote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we need to start doing some more controversial stuff on this podcast. As, as yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I know you're talking about career stuff, and I'm talking about location. Mm, like... No, no. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for sharing that. I mean, I knew what you were getting to... into, Sebastian. <laughs> that, that's really powerful. And I think it's very applicable to not just your situation, but I think a lot of people deal with internal conflicts uh, within their own families. And sometimes having to accept that and live on is what you need to do, however difficult that might seem. Yeah. And I think another part of it, too, is that it takes a certain level of trust in your values, right? If you feel like you are, you know, driven by a principle that you want to see more of in the world and you're getting that pushback, it takes, it, it, it creates so much doubt in your mind. You're constantly thinking, is this worth it, right? Is, are they right? Like, are all of these people who seem to hate me so much, am I just an idiot? Because at the time I was just this 20 year old, nothing. And so constantly I was thinking, am I right? What the hell am I doing on and on? And I think ultimately you just have to trust that if you're acting on your values, you have to trust that that will that is ultimately then the right thing to do. Has your age in interacting with older family members and receiving this criticism, you said a couple of times, I was just a 20 year old. So did that play a factor in your self-doubt and how you evaluated your beliefs? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And especially when we were organizing in communities where the leaders of those communities were 40 or 50 years old. And, and I remember they would say things like us to us of like, you don't understand. It was always around age, right? Like just wait until you're in a lead position of leadership and you have all these competing interests and you have to make these hard decisions. You'll make the same decision that I made. I think that did instill a certain level of doubt, but also it was empowering. It was empowering to feel like I was a young person who was inheriting these lovers of power. And I remember like looking at these people who were like 50 years old and thinking, okay, I'm 20 years old now. And if I'm in power in 30 years and I am where you are when I am 50, you will be 80 years old <laughs> and I will be the one making the call. And so I remember also thinking what age was this great piece of leverage I had. It was a comfort almost thinking you're 15 years away from retirement, man. Like it's me <laughs> up next. <laughs> Brooke, I, I have the feeling you'll be making the shots way before you're 50. <laughs> oh, uh, God. So when you were at, at Harvard Law, you co-authored a publication titled Power, Protest and Political Change. Can you share what the report is about and how you created it? Yeah, I'm happy to. So I co-authored the report with my very good friend and colleague, Daniel Oyolu. We were in the same section and the same classes our 1L year and became great friends. And in the summer of 2020, Daniel and I had a conversation just to catch up and talk about COVID and blah, blah, blah. And he's from, he has a lot of family in Nigeria. And so we're talking about his family in Nigeria. And the topic got onto the George Floyd protests, which had really just started to ignite around the country. And Daniel and I both have been extremely involved in the negotiation and mediation clinical program at the law school. And then I, of course, have my own community organizing background and Daniel has done a lot of political organizing. And kind of the question came up for us of, if you are a movement 
of people trying to make policy change, how do you best negotiate with the state, right? With local officials, because in so many ways, you are put at so many <laughs> places of disadvantage. You're, if your power comes from the number of people on the street and how long they stay there, then that means that your power is fundamentally ephemeral, right? People are going to leave the streets. And so your negotiating leverage will decrease over time. Whereas with the state, their power is not going anywhere unless you can threaten to have enough people vote them out, which is a longer time scale. So there are all of these interesting structural disadvantages that protest movements, like the one that we are seeing around the country were facing. And so essentially the question came up for us, if we look at protest movements around the world, what would we find as some of the best practices for protest movements looking to negotiate with their local officials or on a national level? So we basically went to the negotiation and mediation clinic for advice and they were really energized about it. And so they pitched to us to make it a kind of larger project, which we could do under their aegis. We interviewed activists, we interviewed opposition leaders, we interviewed experts from six different countries, from Venezuela, Tunisia, Syria, Sudan, Yemen, Belarus. And, and what came out was this great report and we really wanted it to make it as accessible as possible. So it's completely free to download. And we also created these one pagers because the report is 83 pages long. What did you learn while putting together this report? And also, can you tell us a little bit about the art of negotiation as you learned from that clinic you were speaking about? I'm just really curious if you have any advice for me and Sebastian and people listening on how to negotiate. <laughs> any negotiation tips? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Gosh, I am such like a child of the Harvard Negotiation and Mediation Clinical Program, which its founder actually, Roger Fisher, wrote Getting to Yes. I don't know. Have you guys ever read that? I have not, actually. Wow. Okay. So if you want to know anything about negotiation, you have to read Getting to Yes. Um, it's one of those things where it's probably going to seem so obvious to you because now it is just how we're taught negotiation everywhere because it was just such an important book. But I think especially in international work, especially in the negotiations that I'm providing technical assistance for, the biggest shift that I've experienced going through the negotiation workshop is that I feel like we see negotiation commonly is this very adversarial process. It's like, how much of the pie can I divide? And like, how can I use my wits and smooth talking and charm and tactics to get the other side to give me a good deal? And of course, negotiation at some very basic level is about meeting your interests. And sometimes that means like, saying things in a certain way that gets the other side to give it to you. But I think that's like the car salesman version of negotiation <laughs> or the haggling on Facebook marketplace for, for a blender version <laughs> of negotiation. <laughs> like we live in, when it comes to, when it comes to even business, but especially when it comes to diplomacy and institutional negotiation and the kind of stuff that I'm working on, Honestly, the best negotiators are the ones who know how to help the other side get to a deal. And it's about, you know, it, it is about building a relationship of cooperation such that the other side thinks it's fair the way that the pie is divided so that you get your slice and the other side 
gets theirs and they're happy about it and they want to work with you again. And then also that you're creating new value as well and that you're helping the other side get to yes just as much as you're helping your own side get to yes. What are, what are some applicable lessons outside of trying to broker a peace deal if you bring it back a level to maybe negotiating your next promotion or even just negotiating with your family? What are some lessons, quick tips that you've learned? Yeah, yeah. I One thing that I do, it's just a thing that I love to say, and I do this when I am negotiating with my mother over a top that we both want or, or in really big moments of necessary communication with my partner on big life events. I think when we, when you're seeing the other side or, or, and I also think applicable in a salary negotiation, like I am, I know that I am a very cooperative negotiator. I'm someone who wants to feel like I'm collaborating with the other side because I care deeply about relationships. And, but often like the other side may not want to play ball with you on that level. They may want to be a bit of, pardon my language, like a bit of a hard ass about it. And because that's what we all think negotiation is. And so often when I'm confronted with a very difficult person or someone acting in a way that I think is not productive, I, it's called naming the game. It's in getting to yes, you can read it there, but I use it all of the time. I basically call them out on the behavior. And I say like, you know, what you are doing right now is trying to get me to realize that what I want is not actually what I want, but I do know what I want. We can keep going back and forth and yelling at each other and basically we'll walk away and hate each other. Or you can give me a number or whatever it is that is actually realistic for you. And then we can have a conversation. And it's, that's one, one tactic or one line for you if you want to get specific about it. Brooke needs to come to either San Francisco or New York and help us negotiate the, <laughs> the next uh, part of our jobs. <laughs> I generally agree that being kind, which I'm pulling out of what you're saying, just generally being kind, being nice to the other side and trying to see what they want and seeing what you want often helps a lot more than what we think. Yeah, and I think another point of it too is that you don't have to... Getting a good deal doesn't mean that you have to be an angry, like chest thumping, door knocking down person, right? Like you can get what you want and you can also come out with a great relationship. And I think often we forget about that. So th this past year you moved to Geneva to work for the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, which you can explain further, but from what I read, is an organization that seeks to support and strengthen democratic institutions around the world. That is a mouthful. So maybe just explain in your own words what it is. And then also, it sounds really badass. Are there two or three things that have happened that you can share that you think, wow, this is totally crazy. I cannot believe I'm here right now in Geneva as part of this meeting or as part of this conversation. We'd love to hear those. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to call it International IDEA because that's the, the acronym that we can, we'll shorten it to. But yes, yeah, so basically IDEA was founded by 33 countries. We're like a little kind of specific organization, very closely affiliated with the UN. And IDEA does two things. One, they do electoral assistance. 
basically election monitoring in countries that are having free and fair elections for the first time, uh, training of civil society on how to get people to the polls, training on media about how to cover an election, that kind of stuff. I'm not involved in electoral assistance. I'm involved in the other side, which is constitution building. We provide assistance to governments, conflict parties, armed groups, other major stakeholders in countries that are going through a constitutional reform process. Basically what that means is often the way that we fight wars now is not usually between countries. We often are seeing more and more civil wars. And often what that means is that the main context, the main nucleus of the grievance is around the political arrangement. So the wars that started as a result of the Arab Spring broadly are about expansive executive authority that has enabled corruption, impunity within the judicial system, infringement of human rights. All of those things are of a constitutional nature. And so as part of the peace process and the peace negotiations to end this war, they're, in, like, they're inevitably tied to a constitutional renegotiation. So that's what we're doing. I, I am also happy to talk about some specifics of the work that I can talk about too. Would love to hear it. Yes, please. Yeah. One really cool project that I got to be on was actually in 2019. In 2019, there was a revolution in Sudan. And in April of 2019, the longtime dictator stepped down. And after a sustained protest movement by these protesters who were like incredibly brave and refused to give up. The military who had ousted the dictator agreed to negotiate with them uh, a power sharing deal that would essentially ferry these two parties through a transitional period and into a state of permanent democratic governance. And we got brought into those negotiations and it was just extremely exciting. It was really fast. The country really, truly was on the brink of civil war and people, there were delegations from, I think it was the AU were working in South Sudan, were working like around the clock, doing some really amazing mediation work to avoid such an outcome. And we were brought in to provide technical assistance on specific questions of this kind of interim constitution that was being very furiously negotiated. Very broad question, but where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> oh God, employed, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I, this is like a huge question. So right now I'm actually officially at IDEA with a fellowship through the law school. It's very common in international work, but I'm on a one-year contract. I love IDEA. I love for doing the kind of strict technical assistance that we're providing, which is thinking through options for constitutional structures. It's very fun as like a lawyer to be like in the kind of meta structure of the legal system in all of these different country contexts. But I think there's a human component to it that I'm missing. I love the negotiation side of things. And so I think if in five years, I could be in a place where I'm working either for an institution, a unit in the UN, an NGO that helps to marry the kind of human mediation-y, negotiation-y side of things with that kind of technical assistance, that would be very cool. Awesome. Brooke, to bring it all back together. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give young Brooke 
or anyone really who's looking to apply to schools, starting their careers? What have you learned that you think you'd want them to know? I think one thing that I did that I'm grateful for and would encourage young Brooke to do is just to follow your hunger on things. Just follow where the fire takes you. There were times in J Street U when I had family members telling me I was an idiot. Or even in, in this situation in law school where there's so much pressure to go to a big law firm and to not take the uncharted path. There were moments where I decided to just follow the hunger and follow the places where I wanted to go instead of the places where maybe others were telling me I should go. And it took me to, to places I never could have imagined. I think that if there's any piece of advice I would give is that if you're eyeing a path that's different than what others are taking, then to remember that anytime someone tells you, no, you shouldn't do that, it's likely not because it's the wrong path, but because no one's ever done it before. And so of course they're going to tell you, don't do this thing, but that's just because it means you'll be the first one. Any regrets? No regrets. I think there are certainly trade-offs to every decision. And I, looking back, I think that there are ways I would have tried to balance those trade-offs differently. Like I think I'm, I'm thinking definitely in, in college, I was so into JCRU and I was so into organizing and into my activism and into work that I let a lot of friendships slip. And I think I didn't fully value my friendships and like value the people in my life. And I think that I wish I had been a little bit more wise about what mattered between my work and between my, my personal life. And that's something that I'm trying to balance right now. I think especially in public sector work, everything feels so urgent and everything feels so necessary. But at the same time, I am a human being with a wonderful partner and interests and hobbies. And so I, I'm still trying to, to figure out too, like how to carve out that time and draw my lines and balance all of the trade-offs of wanting to be a person with a career that I love, but also, yeah, maybe one day have a dog or <laughs> be an artist or do all the things I want to do. It goes back to that saying of you can have it all, but not at the same time. Yeah. How do you, what does it actually mean in practice? How do you balance all those things? So I think if there, I think if there's any regret. It's, it's not like working intentionally enough to balance all those trade-offs but of course i wouldn't change anything about where i am right now thank you so much brooke this has been uh awesome time chatting with you and i've personally learned a lot i'm sure jay and everyone else listening out there has as well but we really appreciate the time thank you of course thank you both <laughs>